So, again, um, we're, we're finished with the period of the Gaonim. We're going to talk about how it came to, to an end um, and the new communities that sprang up, which will ultimately lead us to the growth of Ashkenazi communities, Sephardi communities, um, as, as we'll talk about. Um, I think I referenced, um, when we were talking about Rav Hai, there's a little bit of a debate as to how long the yeshivas actually continue and when the Gaonim stop. Um, if you look at source number one, Sefer HaKabalah from Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud, this is not the Ravid who comments on the Rambam, this is a different Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud, um, but he said Rav Hai is the end. Um, you see my translation there. The members of Rav Hai's yeshiva established Chizkiah as the exilarch, grandson of David ben Zakkai, placed him on Rav Hai's Zichron And it goes on with this story. Um, and the end is, of, is, is what matters for us. After Chizkiyahu, Chizkiyahu being this um, exilarch, the Reish Galusa, as well as Rosh Hashiva, um, the yeshivos and Gaonim ceased. So Rav Hai Gaon, who passed away in 1038, basically is the end of that Era. And at that point, it's all over. Um, historians debate this point. There's one, Jacob Mann, who I brought in, uh, in source number two as an example of it, who think that um, Rabbi Avram ibn Daoud's focus was Spain. And that's why he thought that things ended with Rav Haigon, because it's true that Spain at that point is growing. We saw Rav Haigon's correspondence with Shmuel Hanagid in Spain, uh, who was the leader there. But he argues that the yeshivos of the Gaonim actually do continue for some period of time afterwards in, um, in the areas. Well, take a look in number two. He says, and among those discarded notions, the view of the end of the Gaonate soon after 1038 is to be singled out here. The Gaonate continued to wield great influence on the Jewries of the Orient, extending to Syria, to Egypt, that whole eastern area. That, that we're talking about the Eastern Mediterranean, the South, you know, the um, North Africa into uh, into Syria, that whole area, he says, is still under the Gaonim, and he says it's therefore entirely erroneous. He's very harsh to speak of the end of the so-called Gaonic period with the death of Hai. As regards the Orient, it continued down to the end of the 13th century. So he's thinking that there are actually Gaonim you know, very late in the game. When he says the end of the 13th century, you're talking about Ramban, you're talking about the end of the, uh, of the Balayatosvos. Like, he thinks that there are still Gonim and there are still Yeshivas, it's just that their focus is more narrow, their influence is more narrow. So that's just worth, worth understanding, because I keep saying the Gonim end with Ravai. There's some discussion about exactly how long that, that continues. Um, it will surprise no one to hear that what ends the period of the Gaonim is basically money. Um, that's, you know, that's the way these, thing, these things go. Um, greater economic opportunity arises in Western Europe, starting really back in the 8th century and then just building um, after that. Um, I brought you maps um, and you know, did the, uh, the color. Thank you to B'nai Akiva Schools for the, uh, the color printer. Um, because otherwise the maps are really unintelligible. Right. Um, but the, remember that the Romans conquer basically everything right, in their, in their day. Um, and they control much of what is today France um, until the 4th century. 4th century into the 5th century, you have these tribes that overrun the Romans. 
we're going to talk about places as though they had the same political identity they do today, but they don't. So the terms Italy, Germany, France are meaningless at that point in history. What you have are these tribes that control areas. So you have the Lombard tribes that control Italy. You have the Gauls and the Franks and, and people like that. That's really, um, that's really you know, the driver of this. But in the, in the end of the 8th century, um, you find the rise of a king who unifies much of Europe under his control. And that is... I know. Anybody looked ahead at the source that doesn't have a number on it? Charlemagne. There you go. Charlemagne, meaning Charles the Great, right? Main M-A-G-N-E, Magna. So, um, so yeah, Charles the Great. He is the king of the Franks. Um, he lives from the year 768 to the year 814. You do not need to know that. It won't be on the final. Um, yes. Um, and he has a son by the name of Louis, Louis the Pious. Um, and the two of them were relatively, and I underscore the word relatively, good to the Jews. Right? They're good to the Jews in the sense that they're not massacring us. They're allowing us to live in their land. Like It's a, it's a low bar um, in terms of what good to the Jews means back in those days. But Charlemagne um, unites much of Europe under his control, and that's what you see on this map. Um, they show you in degrees of green the conquests that he made to expand the empire of the Franks. And the, um, the, the most green, the darkest green, is the area that they controlled back in the 5th century. And then it gets lighter and lighter as you go forward in time until the, the I guess, sort of the next to lightest is the part that he added. So if you look at the regions of Saxony in the north, Bavaria, the Lombard Kingdom, which is Italy, in the east, like that whole area, as well as in the south, where he's moving down, you know, to the uh, Spain and Portugal area, all of that he is adding. And you just look where this whole area is bounded by the red lines, and that's all under Charlemagne's control. So today you're talking Belgium, France, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Western Germany, much of Italy, um, and. Jews are able to live there. They pay higher taxes than everybody else. Um, there's a, an official in the government called the Master of the Jews, whose job is to control them. Um, um, there are limits on what Jews are allowed to do, but they're able to live there. And the opportunities for them economically are much better than back home, back east, in uh, in Italian lands, and Italian, excuse me, in um, in in Persian lands, and uh, and so that's where they move. Um, to know a little bit about some of the restrictions they face, take a look at source number three. There's a great resource online through Fordham um, where they have primary sources regarding um, Jewish history as well as general. So this is, you see the year, 814 Common Era, which is actually um, the end of Charlemagne's life. Uh, this was a decree about what Jews could not do in terms of things like money changing, money lending. Let no Jew presume to take in pledge, right, as collateral, or for any debt, any of the goods of the church, in gold, silver, or other form, from any Christian. But if he presume to do so, which God forbid, let all his goods be seized and let his right hand be cut off. Don't take collateral of church property. Bad idea. Let no Jew presume to take any Christian in pledge for any Jew or Christian. Okay, no Christian guarantors for loans. 
nor let him do anything. I'm not guarantors, actually, as a, as a, I think it would be a slave to take a Christian as, as pledge. Nor let him do anything worse. But if he presumed to do so, let him make reparation according to his law. And at the same time, he shall lose both pledge and debt. So you forfeit everything. Let no Jew presume to have a money changer's table in his house, nor shall he presume to sell wine, grain, or other commodities there. But if it be discovered that he has done so, all his goods shall be taken away from him. He shall be imprisoned until he is brought into our presence. And then he talks about how a Jew takes an oath. In the event that there's a need for an oath, he has a Jewish form of oath, which shall be made with a chumash. The, uh, ideally a chumash in Hebrew, or at least in Latin. May the God who gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai help me. May the leprosy of Naaman the Syrian come upon me as it came upon him. May the earth swallow me as it swallowed Datan and Aviram. I have not committed evil against you in this cause. Like that's the oath that a Jew would uh, would have to take, which is much cooler than, you know, I hereby affirm, which we end up doing. You know. so yeah, so sorrel is, is, is a plant material. I don't know the significance. Um, I wanted to look that up and never did. The, um, I don't know why why sorrel. Uh, but the Jews develop communities um, thanks to the fact that they are able to live there. They're able to do business there. They're able to have um, some degree of religious freedom to practice as Jews. Um, and their communities grow. Now, when I say they grow, you still have to realize their communities are small by modern standards. Um, you're not talking about you know, large communities of Jews. In some places, there will be five Jews. In some places, there will be a few thousand Jews. But that's your cap. So why do they feel such a threat if we're such a minority? But why are we? No, but why? it hasn't become a thing then of the Jews, the Jews. So why is it so like much implanted in their brain? Why are we? So part of it is the church. The church is still upset that we haven't converted. Um, that's a thing. So I think that's that's one piece of it. But also Jews had a degree of mystery is the wrong word, but I'm struggling to think of the right word for it in the sense that we had connections to other lands because we were connected to Jews wherever they were. Um, that gave us business ties. Um, that raised questions about our loyalties. You know, are we loyal to the locals or would we be just as loyal to any government anywhere else? And that's a charge, of course, you know, over time. Um, there were allegations of Jews being involved in weird occult-type practices um, that go back to the early church, where they talk about Jews being involved in exorcism and, and, and the like. So yeah, there are all sorts of reasons for them to think that Jews are dangerous and, uh, know. and strange. They, they think we're if you take a look, I mean, Haman's not dead. But if you take a look, we hanged him, but he's not dead. Mm -hmm. If you take a look at source number four, Professor Avram Grossman, who is one of the greatest historians of, uh, of this period, he says, my English translation, the relatively small size of some of the communities in those early days is clear from the sources. In a question addressed to Rabbeinu Yosef Tuvelim, first half of the 11th century, he's one of the authors of Tosvos. It is told that Trois in the Champagne region, I'm very proud that I learned to pronounce that, um, levied a tax for redemption of captives upon several surrounding communities. And the captives gave the majority, and they levied the rest upon Trois and their neighboring brethren in Sans. Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, it sounds good. is the way it's always done in Hebrew. But uh, the, uh, I don't know the next one. Okay. And two and two lives or lives, I should say, in Shalom. I don't know. 
Yeah. Logically, this was talking about two heads of families. The point that he's bringing here is that there are just two families living in this community in Shalom. Like, that's all you, that's all you have. Um, it's not as though you had very large communities. Um, and that's, that, that's really the basis for what will become Ashkenazi Judaism. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk more about this because we're going to talk about Rabbeinu Gershom. And that's going to really give us insight into the growth of Jewish life in, uh, in Germany. What was going on with the rest of the Jewish people I mean, in the country? Right. That were not here. Right. So that's where I'm going now. Um, the economic base that supports the Jews of Babel um, deteriorates at the same time that this is going on. Going up to the 10th century, the 11th century, um, things are uh, things are deteriorating. The the 11th century. In the 11th century, the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad falls to the Iranians, um, and then to the Turks. The Iranians come through first, and then the Turks come through after that. Um, so the Gaonim had been tied to that whole Caliphate. That's where they based themselves. That's where their connections were, um, and that's a major reason for the decline. Um, and then as Jews move to these new communities in Europe, um, that erodes the base of the yeshivos in Bavel, especially because the Jews in these new communities are now supporting the yeshivos where they live. They're not sending money back home. That's not happening. They're supporting the communities in Spain. They're supporting the communities in France. They're supporting the communities in Germany. So a lot of this is really just about finances. Um, there are other factors, though. There's persecution. In Muslim lands, um, the Jews lived, as we've discussed before, under the Dimi rules, which in name are supposed to protect them, um, but in reality restrict very much what they can do and expose them to shame and to insults and so on. Christians' lands weren't much better, but they're marginally better, certainly under Charlemagne. Um, that's a major factor. Um, another major factor is the shift in authority meaning that as these new communities develop yeshivos, they start to ask questions of the Russia yeshiva there instead of sending the questions back to the gonim in Bavel. And that was something, talk about the attitude of the non-Jewish community to the Jews there, that was something that made the non-Jewish community very happy because they were less concerned about loyalty elsewhere when they knew Jews were asking their questions locally. I brought you from Sefer HaKabalah in source number five, Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud is telling a, uh, a story, uh, and the, uh, as the story goes there, there was somebody who was an agent, an agent of what is not clear, um, but he wanted to recant his sale, um, the, uh, meaning the sale done by the rabbi, and the king would not let him, for the king rejoiced greatly when he heard that the Jews in his empire would no longer need the Babylonians. He wanted to sever the king, this is in Spain, wants to sever the ties between the Jews living in his lands and the Jews who are living back in the lands of the Gaonim. The more they could do that, the, uh, including by going with local authority, the better, off they, uh, the better off they were. Finally, the last major factor is simply war. When the Muslims and the Christians are fighting, which happens throughout this period and only grows, right, from starting from the 7th century and working until you hit the Crusades, um, and then it all blows up. Um, the Muslims and the Christians are at war, and you can't communicate. You can't get messages through, you know, from where you know this major center is developing in Europe, back to Bavel, 
where the yeshivos had been. You're not, that's, just not, that's just not happening. And so there's a need for local authority and, uh, and for the communities to really become independent of the old communities of the Gaonim. Clear? Mm-hmm. So where are the new communities? Um, so we mentioned when we, when we were learning about Rav Hai that the major new community is in Andalusia, Right, what we think of as Spain, Portugal, that right, that area today, that is a rising center. Most of this is under Muslim control at this point. They're in units that are called, and I'm probably mispronouncing this, Taifas. I think I looked it up once, and that was what it was, what the pronunciation was, but I'm not sure. T A I F A is a Taifa, and they're basically well areas that are self governed or have alliances with other areas. There could be a federation of taifas who work together. Um, but that's throughout Spain. I found this great map a few years ago in source number six. This is fantastic. Um, it looks very colorful. What does it mean? So I, the truth is I shrunk it too much for it to be really legible. Um, and I didn't bring my reading glasses, but I know what it's about, so we're okay. Um, the, um, so the deal is that Spain... Um, is largely Muslim once the 7th century hits and Muhammad and then his descendants conquer much of the land around the Mediterranean. The Christians, in phases, reconquer that land. And that becomes known as the Reconquista, right? The reconquest of Spain. And they work their way from north to south. So the colors in this map show you how in waves they worked their way south over time until the 15th century. This takes a very, very long time to happen it, the, uh, for them to be able to do it. That was in 1492 when they expelled the Jews. It's their celebration of the fact that they have taken back Spain. In gratitude to God for enabling them to uh, take back all this land, Ferdinand and Isabella say they will demonstrate their loyalty to God by getting rid of the Jews. That's the um, that's how that that's how that works. So, over time in this region, and you see the bands of color, they're working their way um, further further south, taking the land back. Um, Jews had already lived in this area during the time of the Gaonim, but it accelerates as the yeshivos in Bavel become weaker. So people come to Spain. Jews come to Spain from everywhere. They're coming from North Africa. Right, they cross the Straits of Gibraltar, um, leaving Morocco, and they come into uh, southern Spain that way. They come by boat across the Mediterranean. Um, they uh, they come by land across the northern coast of the Mediterranean. Um, the uh, there is something called convivencia. Anyone familiar with the term? Can you ever hear that? So convivencia is a term that's used by historians to argue that at some point during this period, talk, call it um, you know, maybe the, the, uh, the 10th, 11th century, um, Jews, Muslims, and Christians got along really well in Spain. This was a golden age, and they were all very intellectual, and they had academies, and everybody studied together, and they, they, you know, peace and harmony, and so on, until the Crusades broke out. Um, so that's a school of thought. Other historians think that that's absolute nonsense. 
the, um, that that's a reinvention of history by people who want to think that it was positive. It is true. There were Jews who had standing in some of these taifas. Shmuel Hanagid, who we'll talk about, is an example of that. Chazdai ibn Shaprut is another example of that. Um, but um, but there's a lot of dispute as to to what extent everybody just you know got along. You know, everyone points to that and says, "See that? That could happen again." I'm like maybe, but it didn't happen the first time necessarily. Um, but that's where Sephardic Jewry has its start, right? Sephard Spain. Very important to note, um, and this probably will come up in different ways. You know that what people today call Sephardic Judaism is a lumping together of a lot of different communities. You know, and it's now become in recent decades more popular for people to recognize that, and they identify Mizrahi Jews as different from Sephardic. But like these were all different communities. So what the Jews in Spain are doing is not the same thing as what they're doing in Morocco, which is not the same thing as what they're doing in Yemen or Saudi Arabia or Turkey or you know. And today, when I was growing up, certainly like they just you know, oh, those are the Sephardim. Right, where the Ashkenazim and the other Sephardim. Mm-hmm. Um, but they get offended, like because there's yeah, well, yeah. rightfully yeah. so, 100 percent. And how and everything are so right. different. So, so the Jews in these Sephardic lands are living um, in their different communities. Um, you have the ones who are living in the Byzantine Empire, right, which is sort of east along the northern Mediterranean, which will become the Ottoman Empire. Um, you have um, you have the areas in in the area of Egypt, um, which you know have their own identity. Saudi Arabia and Yemen, I just mentioned. You know, Morocco, North Africa. These are all Sephardi communities. Ashkenazi lands, on the other hand. Um, so Italy is the first major center of what would become Ashkenazi Judaism. Now, I, I word it that way because what does the word Ashkenaz mean? Where does that come from? Oh. Uh, so Ashkenaz is Germany. Ashkenaz is, is the term for Germany. How that works, I don't actually know. Ashkenaz is a word in the, in the Chumash. Ashkenaz, Rifas, Garmad, one of the descendants of, of Yefes. Um, how that comes to be associated with Germany, I actually don't know. Not that, I'm, not that I'm familiar with, no. Uh, so, um, so Ashkenaz is Germany. That doesn't become a major community um, at the start. At the start, it's really it's really Italy. Um, that's the first major center. And Italian Jewry is old, right? Italian Jewry you can trace back into the second base Hamikdash and earlier. Yeah, the Romani, the whole. Yeah. So, so I mean, we know it early because in the times of the Mishnah, there are Jews living in Rome. Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, right? The famous Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, where Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma is invited to come live in a uh, community, and he says, "Well, I'm only going to live." Right? They they say, "We'll give you all this money if you'll just come live in our community," and he says, "No, any dar Torah. I'm only going to live in a place of Torah." Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma lived in Rome. That was what he identified as a place of Torah. The Rabbi Chani ben Tradion lived in Rome. Um, I think Rabbi Akiva at one point lives in Rome. Um, I'm not sure of that. They, um, but it, it's um, like that's that's your center is um, you know going way way back, and it grows during this time. There's a lot of research that's been done on Ashkenazi genealogy, 
the, uh, that goes back to the Italian communities. You're familiar with this in terms of certain genes that are known to be associated with uh, you know, diseases that Ashkenazim are, uh, are vulnerable to. In particular, take a look at source number seven. It's an article that appeared in New York Magazine in 2011. Um, I don't know if anybody here will, will remember. We actually brought out Gilad Smon to speak for the Beit Midrash, like the second or third year. I think the third year of the Beit Midrash. So he's a researcher um, here. Genetic research done by Barzilai's Einstein colleague Gil Atzmon suggests that Ashkenazim branched off from other Jews around the time of the destruction of the first temple, 2,500 years ago. He's not talking about them being called Ashkenazi. He's just saying the group genetically that would ultimately become Ashkenazim branches off already. They become sort of their own community at that stage. They flourished during the Roman Empire but then went through a severe bottleneck as they dispersed, reducing a population of several million to just 400 families who left northern Italy around the year 1000 for central and eventually eastern Europe. Now, what is this bottleneck that we're talking about? So take a look at number eight from the work of Nir Barzilai. The Barzilai was mentioned in that article. The Ashkenazi Jewish population is unique as it is derived from a small number, several, number, several thousands of founders. External factors such as ecclesiastical edicts, right, decrees of the church, prohibiting all social contact with Jews, the Crusades, the establishment of the Pale of Settlement right, in Russia, numerous pogroms and ethnic bigotry resulted in social isolation and inbreeding of the Ashkenazi Jews. He doesn't recognize also from a religious standpoint yeah. that, that factor. <laughs> and led this population through a genetic bottleneck resulting in what they call founder effects. This population has been utilized for identification of several genes, a prominent example being the breast cancer gene. So what, what happens is this community shrinks. They actually, according to some, and this is a little bit controversial in genetic research, some claim that like 50% of Jews who identify as Ashkenazi today trace to like four, four women. women. Yeah. 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 The, um, 400 families that were That's what you're saying? Yeah. The, um, you know, again, there's, there, yeah. There, there is controversy regarding that study, and, uh, but, I mean, the point, the central point is for sure true. Um, in the 9th and 10th centuries, Italy is a massive center of Torah scholarship. They used to say, Kimi Bari Tetsei Torah, Udvar Hashem Me Otranto. That's what they used to, that was their line. Rabbeinu Tam in the Sefer Hayasha records that. The, um, like that was, that was the way that they looked at, um, at, at, uh, at Italy. Ultimately, Jews migrate from Italy to centers in Germany. And that comes again with opportunity. Bishop Rudiger um, is the architect of that. If you take a look at source number nine, he welcomes Jews to Speyer, now, those who know Jewish history or those who even just think about the keynotes that are said on, uh, you know, uh, that have been said anyway, historically, on Tisha B'Av, um, will remember, like, about the massacres of Jews in the communities that we're talking about here in Germany. Mainz, Speyer, like, you know, Mainz is Magenza, um, are, are places where, where Jews get, get slaughtered. But at this stage, this is when they're entering. So take a look at what Rudiger, Bishop Rudiger, has to say. And again, that's from that Fordham University uh, website. When I made the villa, I think that's really village, of Spire into a town, 
I thought I would increase the honor I was bestowing on the place if I brought in the Jews. He thought, they said, this will be good for the community. Therefore, I placed them outside the town <laughs> and some way off from the houses of the rest of the citizens. And lest they should be too easily disturbed by the insolence of the citizens, I surrounded them with a wall. Yes. I mean, the, the, the title ghetto is an Italian title from later in history, but yes, that's what it is. Now, the place of their habitation, which I acquired justly, for in the first place I obtained the hill partly with money and partly by exchange, which I received the valley by way of, guilt, of gift from some heirs, that place, I say, I transferred to them on condition that they pay annually three and a half pounds of the money of Spire for the use of the brethren. I have, so I have to pay the church some amount, which you know I don't really know what three and a half pounds was worth. I'm guessing it wasn't small. I have granted also to them within the district where they dwell and from that district outside the town as far as the harbor. And within the harbor itself, I, when he says harbor, I believe he means on the Rhine. The uh, buyers by the Rhine. Um, full power to change gold and silver, to buy and sell what they please. I have also given them license to do this throughout the state. Besides this, I have given them land of the church for a cemetery with rights of inheritance. This also I have added that if any Jew should at any time stay with them, he shall pay no felony. Felony was a fee that you had to pay when you traveled from one place to another and you weren't a citizen, so to cross the border you had to pay a fee. If a Jew comes to stay with them, he can stay. Then also, just as the judge of the city hears cases between citizens, so the chief rabbi shall hear cases which arise between the Jews or against them. That's remarkable. But if by chance he is unable to decide any of them, they shall go to the bishop or his chamberlain. They shall maintain watches, guards, and fortifications about their districts, the guards in common with our vassals. They may lawfully employ nurses and servants from among our people. They can use Christians as nurses and servants. That was a big deal. That was not allowed in many places. Slaughtered meat, which they may not eat according to their law, they may lawfully sell to Christians. Christians may lawfully buy it. Jews have been doing this for a very long time. When you shecht an animal, and either there's part of the animal because you get anasha that you can't eat, or it's treif, so you would sell it to someone who wasn't Jewish. So they were allowed to do that. Finally, to round out these concessions, I have granted that they may enjoy the same privileges as the Jews in any other city of Germany. So Jews, look at this. That's way better than the deal they've had in Italy. Um, and they migrate in large numbers, relatively again, to Germany. And then from Germany, the next stop for Ashkenazi Jewry is France. This is Rashi's time, right? Exactly. So Rashi comes along and... He is born in Troyes in France. He goes to learn in the yeshivas in Germany, and then he goes back to France, and he founds a yeshiva in France, and that's how France grows as an, Ashkenaz, as an Ashkenazi center as well. So a lot of this is just driven by where we were allowed to live, where we were able to make it financially, and that's what we're going to see as we, you know, as we move forward into this bridge period. Um, the people I want to learn about are Shmuel Hanagid in Spain, uh, Rabbi Nassan of Rome, author of the Aruch in Rome, right? The uh, Rabbi Gershom in Germany, the Clonimus family in uh, in Italy. People like that are the ones who end up bridging this period that will ultimately lead to the period of the Rishonim and some names who are more familiar, like Rashi, Rabbi Tam, you know, and uh, the Rambam figures like that. Mm. How long did the bishop? 
continue to rule or give, give the Jews, you know, this freedom and flexibility? Yes, I don't know how long he is. I don't know. It's a good question. Don't know. Um, I do have a little bit more about him in my notes, but I don't remember offhand. Good. Okay, so let's go over to Parsha. I actually finished what I wanted to finish today. That never happens. <laughs>